Hello and welcome to the fifth episode of the Elite Prospects podcast with J.D. Burke and Craig Button. The voice you're hearing right now is mine. I am J.D. Burke, the editor-in-chief of Elite Prospects and the uh, the editor-in-chief as well of Elite Prospects Rinkside. And joining me, as always, is my intrepid co-host, Craig Button, uh, the director of scouting for TSN. And we're here to talk about the NHL draft. And of course, we're not going to really know the outcome of these players' careers for another three, four, five, perhaps even six or seven years. But with what we knew going into the process, we have the information to make some informed guesses on the outcomes that uh, might beset these teams in the years that follow. So, uh, of course, we don't have the benefit of, uh, of the plant here at, at our disposal. We can't look into the future. We don't know what's going to happen. But with our intel, the fact that we made our rankings going into this process, we can make some value judgments based on which teams drafted what players, where they drafted them, the organizational fit. And it's going to be a really fun exercise. We're going to look at players picked rounds one all the way through seven, hopefully cover every one of the NHL's teams, look at some of our favorite picks, our least favorite picks. And of course, we don't want to be too hubristic here. We always allow for the possibility that the teams have intel that we perhaps don't at our disposal. Uh, but but even so, we have to be confident in our analysis and we have to project based on that. And and I really couldn't be happier to be joined by Craig Button to do precisely that. So, Craig, uh, what are your thoughts on this draft class? Let's, let's get this ball rolling here. Let's look at what happened with 2020, uh, a year like uh, none other, certainly, and, and one without precedent. But, but here, we've already made the estimations of the group. We've made them through our prospect rankings. Mm-hmm. And you do it, I do it, the NHL teams do it, right? So I, I don't think the draft changes anything. I, I, I think the draft is, is a case of now where we got to go back and look in time. And you've heard me say this often, J.D., scouting is never static. And you have to always be evaluating over a continuum. And, you know, just because a draft happened, like nothing's nothing's significantly changed in that short a period of time. So, you know, when, when, when there's a discussion about talking about who had a good draft or who had a bad draft, it's like, it's like taking an exam away from a student when he's a quarter of the way through it and saying, okay, we're going to judge the exam now and that'll be your final grade. And, you know, one of the, one of the most challenging things that happens with, grading a draft in the in the immediate aftermath of a draft is that w- what benchmark you're using and the benchmarks that are used are basically your own rankings so yeah no that's ends, totally fair. inevitably ends up happening is if, if a team did drafted players that you had rated i you think they did really well and if a team didn't draft players uh that you that, that you didn't rate high you think they didn't do so well and and i'm going to give you an example and I'm just going to just go back a, a bunch of years. In, in the 2007 NHL entry draft, Patrick Kane was the first pick. And there was no question he was the best player in that draft. So Jamie Benn was the second best player in that draft. He went in the fifth round. Yeah. Yeah. You know what, Craig? That's funny that you brought him up specifically because that was the example I used in my uh, favorite and least favorite uh, picks article on Elite Prospects. And the reason I bring it up is because it's like we discussed with Reese. It's it's you don't want to look back, uh, what, 12, 13 years later and be like, how could I have created a, a process that would account for Jamie Benn as being the second most productive player in this class? Because at that point, 
I, I mean, the, the analogy I made was instead of making a, a net the size of a football field with tears and massive holes throughout in the hopes that you can account for those outliers, what I would want is a more durable, robust net with which to fish for, for NHL talent so that, you know, maybe I will occasionally miss those outliers, but those are the mistakes that one doesn't need to necessarily feel too bad about. Because if you look at Jamie Ben's career and you look at what he was doing in the BCHL at the time of that draft, you would go, well, was there really any indication at that point that he would be this type of player? And frankly, if there was, I think he might have gone a few rounds higher than the fifth, right? So uh, I think that that also plays into it as well. Another component that I try to kind of take into account when I'm looking at these teams and how I think they performed at the draft is the question of relative value. And uh, that that requires a bit of sleuthing and talking around and, and seeing who has which players ranked where. I mean, I was talking to somebody just yesterday and they were going, well, you know, Brock Faber, for example, at 45 was a bit rich for their blood. And I said, well, I have it on good authority that if that team didn't jump at 45, the Los Angeles Kings to take Brock Faber there, he would have been gone by their pick, right? So it's it's one of those things where you try to take into account your board, you try to take into account relative value, and, and you kind of try to create a synthesis of those two things. So, you know, for example, I'm I'm a bit higher on, let's say, a Maverick Bork than the rest of the league. He ends up going number 30 to the stars. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily grade that on the scale that I think uh, Maverick Borg should have gone at, at, let's say, 13 or 14th overall based on my board. I would still recognize it as a plus value pick because he went so much later. But I think the kind of threshold I would have put on that pick is if he goes around like 22, 23, based on the fact that I know the NHL was a bit lower on him than we were and trying to kind of create something useful out of that. Yeah, but but the way but you got to let time uh, you know tra- you got to let time pass before you can really do it because the biggest lesson I've learned in scouting all these years is have I overrated players have I underrated players uh, and it's continuous and do I have a player too high do I have a player too low you know what you're always trying to do is is evaluate players accurately not. Not, 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 we all like players differently. We all like somebody more than a little, a little bit more than this guy or a lot more than that guy. And conversely, on the, on the other side, less and a lot less. But you know what? What you have to always do, and you have to do it continuously, is evaluate your own evaluations. Because if you don't evaluate your own evaluations, uh, you're not going to learn and you're not going to grow. And the time to evaluate your own evaluations, to me, is never in the after the immediate aftermath of a draft you gotta let you gotta you gotta continue to watch and continue to look and see what's happening so it, there's no question maverick bork's a good good player so time will tell us you know and and, and that time will be in a year we'll, we'll have a little bit stronger okay geez we rated him too low or we rated this player too high and in two years time it'll become even more clear and in three years time it'll be really clear but it's got to be over a continuum. Mm-hmm, for sure. There's just it's no way. Constant. Yeah, there's just no way you can evaluate a draft in the aftermath. There's no way. It's impossible. And well, I, it's... I, I've been asked to do this lots over the years, JD. And all I ask for, what's the methodology you're going to use to do it? And it all comes back to you. You base it on your own evaluations. So yeah. Like I said, so if you if if somebody did what you thought, they're like you, they took players that you rated high. You, you, oh, they did great. Well, I'm not so sure. You might be wrong. 
Yeah, that is that is always the the risk with this field. And it's actually kind of something that on a bit of a tangential note, like kind of draws me to this part of, of the industry, this niche uh, element of the NHL is just that you really have so little uh, data to go off of, right? I mean, if you're comparing, for example, I'm just looking at my grades article here. Uh, let's say Kobe Ambrosio. Okay, well, let's say he goes on to have an NHL career. I'm going to know what his his on-ice shot attempt differential is. I'm going to know what his expected goals differential is. Uh, with the advances of, of, of puck tracking, I'll know how fastly he shoots the puck and how quickly he skates and what sort of impact that has on his team's play in transition. But so much of <clears throat> what we do with the amateur draft is is really kind of it's it's the difference between art and science, right? You're you're really trying to kind of get the the qualitative component, and and of course that's going to lead to so many different subjective evaluations. And I I really do find that kind of fun, almost the uh, the fact that you just kind of have to stick it out. You have to put your opinion out there and let the the cards fall as they may. And uh, you know that's that's certainly something that I think draws some people away from the draft. But for me, it's it's really something that's made it an attractive part of the NHL to cover. Uh, and, and to that exact end, I think we should probably, as we, we get into the, the coverage of the NHL draft, probably talk about what went down in the first round, because I think that's the, the largest group of players that are ever going to see NHL action. And uh, Craig, what a pair of picks at 20 and 21. Uh, I mean, Shakir Munkumadulin at 20 was, was definitely a bit rich for my blood, but I don't think it was too outlandish relative to what we anticipated might happen at that point of the draft, but then you follow that up with Igor Chinnikov at 21. I mean, that was one hell of a swing. And and right now I'm actually watching a ton of tape. I think I put in like seven games yesterday. I get ISO tape, so I get to watch just Igor Chinnikov's uh, shifts. And, you know, in- interesting player and, and really kind of a, a, a swing at that point in the draft that you would only expect almost from a Yarmo Kekalainen and, and you know, it's funny, at first you look at that pick and you go, ooh, that might be a bit rich for my blood, of course. And and certainly when you look at the public rankings, I think that bears that out. But I mean, if anybody has the right to take that kind of a swing at that point in the draft, surely it's somebody with the track record of a Yarbo Kekalainen. And as I do this evaluation, I say to myself, well, I better be thorough because the last person I want to be on the other side of an amateur uh, prospect evaluation with is is definitely Yarmo Kekalainen. So I really wanted to get your take on on the pick. Uh, if you found yourself in any similar situations where you're you're because you've been on the the NHL draft floor, have you ever found yourself in a spot where you go, I'm not sure about Igor Chinikov uh, if he's going to be available at our next pick, uh, but it's going to look like a huge reach if we take him here. And how you kind of create a game plan based around that. So I'm really curious because you had Chinikov, I think, a bit higher than most at the end of your second round. He ends up going to 21st overall. Huge outcry of opinions on that pick. Where do you stand? He was going in the first 40 picks, and he might have even gone in the first round. That I know. And, uh, you know, it's very interesting if you go back and, you know, a lot of people, I shouldn't say a lot of people, that's not fair to say, you know, I heard, I heard commentary about, oh, where did this guy come from? Well, if you were watching the 2001 born Russians, he, he was at all the major events. He was at all of them. <laughs> he, he, he was a player that was closely watched and closely scouted and dominated the MHL this past year. Dominated. He was a dominant offensive player. And, where Igor really benefited from, and some other players did too, 
uh, and, and we're going to know to a greater extent in time. But the fact that the KHL started up again and he went into the KHL and really, really uh, was, was strong and good. So that gives a team more confidence to, to look at a player. And so there's a benefit. Like I probably wouldn't have, I shouldn't say that because I'm not sure of that because he would have had opportunity to play in other events if the season didn't get paused. But the fact that he went into the KHL and that he played at such a level, I, I, I think that that helped him, uh, you know, give other teams confidence. But I can t- I, I was asked about that player specifically last spring and certainly uh, leading into the uh, leading into the draft. And I'm not talking in the in the immediately prior, but leading up to it because NHL scouts knew him and they, and they knew him and they knew about him and they knew and they knew a lot about him because he'd been scouted so much. And then you have, uh, you know, what you talk about with Yarmo and every GM. They're trying to evaluate, okay, can I get this player somewhere else? Can I move back? I mean, we saw Calgary, uh, the only team, I shouldn't say the only team, because, uh, well, they're the only team that moved back. They did it twice in the first round to try to acquire more picks. And I have to imagine that Yarmo was trying to evaluate, okay, can we do that exact same thing? And that's why I say I'm not so sure he could have. I'm not so sure that where he would have moved to. And, and, and certainly you could say, well, could if he moved back uh, one spot or two spots like Calgary did and, you know, take uh, get an extra pick and still get his player at 24 or maybe into the second round. I have to imagine that Yarmo uh, evaluated it, the, the intel that they use, uh, you know, to try to ascertain, is this something we can do and get the guy we want or is it not? But, uh, there's no question that you explore those ideas, but at the same time, you also have to say, okay, do we think we can get him at that spot? I think that Yarmo clearly came to the conclusion that he couldn't and he took him. Yeah. Yeah, no, fair enough. And and I spoke to one team in the Eastern conference and, and, you know, we, we've talked a bunch on this show about how different the boards are in, in public and team spheres. And, and, and a lot of that is just a reflection of where they're picking. Right. So they're not going to bother deliberating on prospects with which they have zero chance of, of landing based on their draft position. But I did speak to one team who had had uh, Chinakov, I think, ranked in the mid-20s. Uh, now, they did qualify that that bit of uh, information by saying, if we have a player in the 20s, we anticipate that we'll have them available to us in the third round. And uh, so that's that's kind of the interesting kind of spin on that. But they also went on to tell me that Igor Chinikov at 21 was, in their estimation, a, a very bold move, but not necessarily one that they would uh, look down upon in, in any respect. And again, they they kind of echoed the same sentiment, which is, if anybody has a right to take that kind of a swing, it's going to be Yarmo Kekalainen with his track record. So, uh, you know, he he's a really fascinating prospect. I, I kind of was watching Chinikov yesterday, and I'm saying to myself, he's, he's a little bit like a almost like a swashbuckler with his stick. I mean, he, he doesn't carry the puck for very long. He's not a possession player. Uh, he's got great eye-hand coordination, but it's that shot of his that really kind of does damage. And uh, he doesn't keep the puck on his stick for very long. It's it's on his stick, and he's already aiming at the goal and going top corner. It's, it's really impressive. Uh, you know, not necessarily a technically gifted passer, but I think that the, the end goal with a player like Igor Chinikov is 
uh, can we get an NHL caliber sniper? And watching some of that footage uh, yesterday, I certainly thought to myself, the the chances are perhaps much higher than I suspected at the time they made that pick. And uh, that's going to be a really fascinating one to follow. Um, were there any other picks in the first round that really stuck out to you? As 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 I mean, again, we we both know, right? Like we're not going to have the full picture for another five plus years. But based on our current analysis of this group, were there any picks in the the first round that really stuck out to you as well as some really fascinating swings that you think are going to pay off more than uh, people give credit or on the opposite end of that, some ones that you thought were a little bit ill-advised based on the current intel available to us. So, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mention three things here. Uh, a real significant mentor to me, longtime executive in the NHL, Les Jackson, always said, I'd rather be wrong with my opinion than right with somebody else's. Now, we can debate the merits of that, but what it really is, is about when you're going and you're spending the time you know, scouting and evaluating, debating, discussing, right? Like stand on your own merits. Don't worry about what anybody, what, what anybody else, you know, does. You, 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 you're aware of it, but don't worry about what people are going to say or not say. You know, and the bottom line is when you're going into the draft and if you've done, if you believe in your process and you believe in your evaluations and, and how you arrive at something, then you got to trust it. Yeah, and, and, you know, too many teams, I've seen it over the years, too many teams don't trust it. And that's where they end up making mistakes. And, you know, and, 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 and that lack of trust manifests itself in many different ways. So, so, that's so when we talk about a bold thing, I heard that David Boyle was bold, taking a goaltender. You know, the, the number of times that I could count on my hand, J.D., that I've heard about this team being, oh, taking a small defenseman, Eric Branstrom at 15. Really, what was bold about that? He's a good player. You know, oh, taking a Russian like Evgeny Kuznetsov. Oh, he's got a contract over there. You know, again, like we can apply bold or taking a big swing to so many different areas and to, and to players that are ranked high and are rated high. You know, so, you know, we got to keep that in mind also, that there's lots of that go that goes on. Like, you know, you know Preparing for the draft every year when we, I mean, Bob McKenzie and I do it for NBC and then we do all our work for TSN. It's amazing what you hear. And, you know, I talked about this with Tyson Forster, who I compared to Corey Perry. And, you know, when I watched Tyson Forster play, I said, Jesus, this guy really reminds me of uh, Corey Perry. I asked other people who I really trust if, if what their thoughts were. And, they, you know, they, 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 they saw similar things. But then when we're talking about him being drafted, I talk about him, and then Bob talks about what the scouts said. And, and so what Bob was talking about was the same concerns that people had about Corey Perry were the same concerns about Tyson Forster, which to me, there's nothing wrong with having a concern. But are you going to make the same mistake again? Like, it was fascinating to me that, you know, not only what was, in my view, a comparable player, but the same criticisms of Tyson Forster were exactly the same as Corey Perry. I get that. I, I see what, what, what happens in, in, in that regard. So, you know, trying to evaluate, you know, wh where players are at and why a team takes them. Because I'll tell you this, 31 NHL teams, uh, draft boards are all different. Every single one is different. Public ones are different. So there is no board that will ever be the same, ever. And so, you know, 
teams are, they don't make theirs public, but they're going through a process. And I've heard it. I've heard it many times. Can you believe so-and-so took that player? And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, that team's saying the same thing about you taking that player. And yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's that's the beauty of opinion, right? That's that's and that's why I say we gotta just wait and see. So, you know, like like so when we go through this, JD, we talk about the draft, right? So why don't we go through the first uh I'm just gonna say, oh, sorry, here, just give me a second here. The first 10 picks. Okay, let's just go mm-hmm. through the first 10 picks. First 11 picks, first 12 picks, first 13 picks. Was there any surprise to you that those names were called? I'm not talking about the order, but was there Mm -hmm. any surprise to you that those were the 13 names called? If you want to go 14 or 15, were you surprised? No, no, I don't really think so, actually. It was actually a a pretty standard group in in terms of how the top 12, 13 picks even played out. And, you know, we were doing the live stream on on Elite Prospects. I remember, uh, you know, Jack Quinn pick got a reaction out of us. That was... You know, I, I think that one was a little bit interesting just because I had it in my mind, of course, that Marco Rossi would probably be the first Ottawa 67 off the board. And it was pretty interesting to see them go in that order. But like you said, the actual group of players uh, therein was was more or less what I expected. And I, I got to the point where when Carolina picked Seth Jarvis, I was almost booing on the live stream. So I was like, well, that's boring. That's that's the obvious pick. That's absolutely who they should be taking. You know, it was not too many surprises, unlike in years previous, where, for example, you know, you get Barrett Hayton in the top 10. Uh, it seems like there's always one of those, right? And I don't know if we had an obvious one that really sticks out in this year until we get to perhaps, I don't know, 17th overall when the Blackhawks uh, took Lucas Reichel. And and even then it depends on your mileage, right? Like I I found myself, I mean, there was this inescapable comparison between Reichel and John Jason Paterka. It felt like just because of where they kind of uh, postured themselves in terms of this draft as, as players expected to go in the late first or early second uh, as that second wave of German talent behind Tim Stutzla and and that for me, Lucas Reichel at 17 was really the first pick that got a, a little bit of a reaction out of me in terms of, oh, I'm not sure if I saw that one coming this early, but uh, even then you look at the rest of the, the first round, Shakir Mukamadoulin, that's probably a bit early for my tastes, um, but it's not, it's not out of the realm of possibility. Like I certainly anticipated he would go somewhere late in the first round or uh, early second. So it's, it's really kind of, when you look at this group, there's, there's no real sore thumbs necessarily that, that catch your attention for all the wrong reasons. And of course, with that, you have to have the, as you've laid out the humility to, to believe that they have their evaluation and they're not uh, necessarily drafting these players based on, on the same Intel that you have. And perhaps that will bear out in their favor in four or five years time. But uh, you know, between, I guess one in 16, every pick played out in a pretty uh, reasonable, almost predictable fashion. Well, and, and, and so that's why I asked the question. And, and, you know, for Marco Rossi, like, so we can debate if we think Marco's better than Jack or Jack's better than Marco. But you also have to look at Buffalo. They have Jack Eichel and they have Dylan Cousins in the middle of the ice. They need, they need goal scorers. So, like, you know, and, and we've discussed this often, J.D., it's groups of players, and then you evaluate. Okay, 
what does this player have? Okay, this is a position that he plays. What type of player is he? This is this player's position. What type of player is he? What does he offer? You look at what their development timelines are. You know, you, you, you include a lot of different elements with, with assessing what player might fit for your team in, in, with respect to style, timing, position, and all those things. And so, like, so when I look at Jack Quinn or Mark Rossi, it's, it's, not a, it's not even a debate about who's better. We can have that debate from now on. We're, we're going to find out. But I know for the Buffalo Sabres, I, I, I totally 100% understand why they would take Jack Quinn over Marco Rossi. Yeah, especially if you're looking at a position the, that the Buffalo Sabres are in. I mean, so much of, of what they're trying to do right now is centered on we need to make Jack Eichel happy. And how are we going to do that? We're going to give him people that can put the puck in the back of the net. We're going to get him competent line mates and we're going to find a way to make this team as competitive as possible, as quickly as possible. And, you know, and in terms of the the kind of through line between Jack Quinn and some of their other thinking, you can look at somebody like a Taylor Hall signing and how that is made with that same end in mind almost, right? So I, I think that you're totally on fertile ground in terms of, of you, you look at these players in groups, you tier them appropriately, and then you make valuations dependent on where your organization is at in their competitive arc, how this player fits into it. And, and you know what, like was, was Jack Quinn at eight a bit rich for my blood? I mean, certainly because uh, as you said, everybody has their own, as their own board and Jack Quinn, I think I probably had him closer to 18 than I did eight, but who knows, perhaps in three, four years time, Buffalo is looking pretty good and I'm looking the fool for that one. Uh, What did you think of Lucas Reichel though at, at number 17, Craig? I was really curious about that one because like I said, I mean, Jack Quinn, Marco Rossi, I would have switched the two, at least in terms of order, but I can kind of see the reasoning there. Uh, the, the Lucas Reichel one was really the first pick of the first round where I was like, oh, that's interesting. Uh, that I, I like his package of speed and, and his shot and just the fact that Lucas Reichel, I mean, he, he does a great job of, of producing points in a, a men's league, in the DEL. Uh, that has to Aja really well for a successful NHL career. Uh, I did wonder about the skill component, whether he brings enough in terms of his puck skills, his off-the-puck timing, uh, his instincts, that sort of thing, whether he's going to have enough to be a, a top six contributor. And certainly, I think that should be the end goal when you're picking at number 17. But I've spoken to some really, really good talent evaluators, people that I rely upon a great deal uh, in terms of, of checking my own work. And they told me, hey, JD, you're totally missing the boat on this Lucas Reichel kid. I'm curious, where do you stand on, on Chicago taking him at 17th overall? Yeah, well, okay, so I'll get to Lucas in a second. But, like, you know, whether you have Jack Quinn at 8 or 18 or whether it's too rich for your blood or whatnot, right, I, I think the key thing is, J.D., is, is continuing to evaluate, okay? Might have been a little too rich for him, okay? I'm going to continue to watch. Did I, did, I, uh, did I underrate him? And, and, and same thing with overrated players, you, you know? Uh, you have to always keep that in mind, okay? And and I think you do. So it's not about looking like a fool. Keep in mind that everybody that selected a player in this draft, in the first round, the second round, whatever, they believe in these players. They believe that these players are going to come in and help their team, right? And so there's a confidence there, and you have that confidence, and, and that's important to have. But then there's the, the next component, which is just continue to evaluate. You're not going to be a fool because you thought – he, he, he was maybe taken a little bit higher than you would have taken him if he turns out to be that great player. And, and it, it's just about that, okay, 
I'm going to make sure that I understand why and I'm going to keep watching. And, and, and then you got to got to be willing to change. You got to be willing to change your mind. Not, and that's why I say not immediately after, but as time goes on. Now, mm-hmm. And internalizing the right lessons, of course, too. Right. And, what's and totally, help that's you, a part of like, the process. It, it, it is. And, and, and you nailed it. It's part of the process. And like, okay, what did I learn from this one? Because as much as we use a lot of different elements to evaluate, you know, it's still, it's still not a precise uh, process. So, you know, you put all these things together, lessons from the history, you know, what does the analytics tell you? What does the, the, the physiology tell you? What does your own personal feel tell you? All those things come into play here. So back to, so, so now I'll jump into Lucas Reichel, right? And so I, I, I like Lucas Reichel and, and, and I thought he was a good, like, like a good player, you know, again, you, you look at Chicago, and, and, and certainly I had Dawson Mercer rated higher. I had Hendricks Lapierre rated higher. I had Tyson Forster rated higher. So at, the, at leading into the draft, I, I, Connor Zary, I, I knew who I had rated higher and who I liked more than Lucas Reichel. But now I, I, I try to take a step back and go, okay, what are they getting in Lucas Reichel? And I think that when you talked about is he a top six guy or is he going to be a third line player? Is he going to be that middle six where he kind of in between a little bit? You know, I think you've allowed now for uh, like a, a spread of what that player can be. And I don't know if I've shared this story with you previously, but I'm going to try to be real quick on it. Darren Helm was drafted, I believe, in the fourth round by the Detroit Red Wings. He was fast, he was quick, and you know, everything that you saw in the NHL. He wasn't the biggest of players. But then he, he blew up the Western Hockey League in points. And years later, after Darren had played in the NHL, won a Stanley Cup, I asked Jim now. I said, Jim, how did you evaluate uh, uh, Darren Helm? Did you think that he had this offensive upside that you saw at the latter part of junior? or And, and you were expecting that now? Or did, He goes, Craig, here's what we saw him as. He said, we saw him as a Chris Draper Chris Draper type player. We really valued his speed. We valued his intelligence. We valued how competitive he was. But we thought there was a 80 to 90% chance that he could be a Chris Draper type player and play in that role. We allowed that he might be an offensive player, but we only gave it about a 20% uh, possibility. So to me, you know, he, he became exactly what they thought he would be. They allowed that maybe he could get a little bit more. Uh, maybe be a little bit more offensive, but they also were really comfortable going back in time and, and evaluating their own process. So I think when you talk about Lucas Reichel, so I can't debate or disagree with anything that you said, and I won't, but maybe that's exactly what Chicago wanted. And I think that that's sometimes, you know, trying to understand what a team, now if Chicago comes in and says, Listen, we think he's a first-line left winger. We think he's going to score 60 points a year at a minimum. Well, now we can start to have that at debate and say why or why not. But how you described him is exactly how I see him. And I think that, you know, being realistic about what you're getting is really important because, again, you can overestimate a player's potential. You can also underestimate a player's potential. My history in, in, in the draft is the vast majority of, of times you're overestimating a player's potential because you believe in it, and that's a good thing. But how you laid it out for Lucas Reichel is where I see it. So, you know, if, if they have that same evaluation, that's the guy they want. There's not like 
time will tell, uh, like if they should have taken somebody else. Like, clearly, there's players I would have taken ahead of Lucas Reichel. But he he doesn't fall that far off with respect to, you know, uh, you know that's, yeah, that's what I should say. He doesn't fall that far down the list, at, you know, after 17. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's totally fair. And, and you know what? You mentioned Hendricks Lapierre, which kind of dovetails nicely into another pick that I thought was really fascinating from the first round. I was looking at the New York Rangers, and I think you'll remember this too. We had that conversation about what they do with first overall, how that informs their actions with picks later in the first round, and 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 basically the need this organization has at center and and the glaring need that they have in their prospect pool. And I remember you were very high on on Carl Henriksen and Actually, he kind of grew on me late in 2019 as well. So I'm, I'm totally on board with that. But I think uh, we would both agree that that's an area of need for their prospect pool. And of course, you never want to give up the best player available at the expense of team needs. But, you know, in much the same way that Jack Quinn kind of fit with what the Buffalo Sabres are trying to do presently, uh, I look at what the Rangers did at number 19 was Braden Schneider. I don't know about you, Craig, but when I saw them trade up, I was like, okay, here it is. Dawson Mercer went... This is New York trading up so that they can take a huge upside swing on Hendricks Lapierre. And what a perfect fit this is going to be. Like I I was ready to write that pick into Elite Prospects back end all by myself, and I don't even have the access. I'd have to find a way to do it. But then they throw us a curveball and they take Braden Schneider, a right shot defenseman, which is an area of their prospect pool, which they're relatively flush in. And that's before considering they have uh, Adam Fox and, and and Jacob Truba already patrolling the right side of their NHL blue line. That was a really fascinating pick to me. And of course, I'm always going to evangelize. You take the best player available based on your board. I just didn't anticipate that the Rangers would would trade up to add to a, a part of their pool that they're already so overwhelmingly stacked with. Uh, what did you think of that pick? Because I, I think in terms of, of value and where I anticipated Braden Schneider might go in this draft, totally reasonable. Like if you told me going into this process, Braden Schneider is going to go to a team that moves up to take him at 19th overall, I would have been like, yeah, that makes perfect sense based on the intel I have. If you told me that team that moved up was the New York Rangers, might have raised an eyebrow. So I'm curious to get your thoughts on that one as well. Uh, you know, one thing what I will say about about Braden is, it, it, is that just because he plays the right side of defense, you know, uh, doesn't mean he doesn't uh, add a different element to their team. I mean, he's different than Adam Fox and Tony D'Angelo. They don't have to rush him in. And uh, like, I don't know where they go. I mean, salary cap implications, but obviously, you know, he, he fits into that, uh, uh, into a style of player that, you know, I think that the the Rangers covet. You, you, you look at a, a lot of teams covet that type of player and they have to make a decision. Now, I talked about Igor Chinnikov, uh, you know, how, you know, this draft, you know, being able to play into the KHL season prior to the draft helped him. And to me, the only issue surrounding Hendricks Lapierre was the confidence level, the comfort level of teams being with the medical report. And, you know, you, you don't have your own doctors uh, evaluate it. Uh, you don't have the time to spend with him to really go through it. So you're, you and, and it's not to say that the medical report is wrong or inaccurate or anything. It, it's all about confidence. And you're going to have more confidence in your own uh, medical staff because that those are the people that you're, you're paying to provide that input. And I think that 
the fact that, you know, teams weren't able to spend time one-on-one with Hendricks medically, physically, and in the interview process, I I think pushed him down a little bit, pushed him much further down uh, than I would have had. But you have to be satisfied with the medical report. And, you know, when I, I, I compared it on the broadcast on NBC with, you know, when you think about Tua, who got drafted by the Miami Dolphins, and I just go, I just call him Tua. So when he got drafted by the Miami Dolphins after coming off that horrific injury, the Miami Dolphins spent time with him. They had their strength and conditioning people with him. Uh, all, all the areas to, to, to build that confidence that he's our guy. I don't think, I don't think teams uh, were hesitant on drafting Hendricks Lapierre, the player, the potential, and everything. But I think absolutely there was some concern uh, medically on him. And is it fair? I don't know, but it, it, it was a reality. And, and I think that that's why uh, he, he, he fell to the spot he did. And, and that very well could be the case with the, uh, with the New York Rangers. They may have felt that, hey, you know what? We like him, but we're not confident as we need to be to draft him at that point. And we can disagree with it, but, I mean, that's a factor that goes into decisions like that. Mm-hmm. For sure. I, I totally get that. And and certainly uh, I, I've spoken to some teams where like the risk just does not warrant it in the first round and others who were totally yeah. on board with what Lapierre brought to the table. And of course, the Washington Capitals, I really like that fit as well. Uh, I think he went to a perfect spot. I mean, you look at a team like Washington and you go, their window isn't huge. So they need to take these sorts of high upside swings so that they can just keep on opening it one crack at a time, hoping that they can get... Uh, Alex Ovechkin, another shot at that Stanley Cup, right? And if you get him a distributor like a Hendricks Lapierre, I mean, maybe he doesn't play with Ovi because of Nicholas Backstrom and Kuznetsov, but I mean, talk about a high-end injection of talent into your offense. I mean, that's just a perfect fit if you ask me. Uh, you know, one of the senators, or one, not one of the senators, one of the centers I might have considered for the Rangers in that spot, I mentioned him earlier, Maverick Bork or Brendan Brisson. Uh, those were two really fascinating picks for me at the end of the first round. And and I wonder what your thoughts on this are as well, Craig, because we were looking at at sort of what sort of developing trends were happening or occurring in the first round. And if you look at the players picked from about 23 to 30, I think with the exception of perhaps Jacob Perot and to a slightly lesser degree Ridley Gregg, we kind of observed elite prospects, a trend where NHL teams were kind of backing off from players who didn't have high-end skating a little bit. So, for example, we had Maverick Bork and Brendan Brisson, two players that we rate very highly at elite prospects in the early teens. Uh, on my personal board, I had, I think, Brisson at about 10 or 11 and, and Bork right at 15. And, and that's because I believe in their hockey sense. I believe in their offensive instincts. I believe in their ability to get the puck to their teammates and, and distribute uh, and create really spectacular plays in the offensive zone. But the one concern that kept coming back to me was, are they going to play at the pace necessary to be successful in the NHL? Are they going to skate at a high enough level to be successful in the NHL? And of course, you look at where they went in the the first round, right near the end, I kind of wonder if we're looking at something of a trend that's developing. And And, and even to a lesser degree, I can kind of see somebody like Dawson Mercer playing into the development of this trend where NHL teams are placing more of a premium on skating and, and pace. Uh, and, and that does kind of fit with the way that the, the game is going. And I wonder what your thoughts are on that. If you've seen similar trends occur, if this is kind of something that happened in a vacuum or if it fits with a larger pattern, 
just because I, I thought that was something that really caught my eye, at least at the end of the first round. Well, I, I, I would suggest you could go back. You went back to Dawson Mercer. I, I, I mean, Braden Schneider, I mean, his skating to me is good. Uh, you know, Shakir Mukamadoulin, you know, you Tyson Forster, uh, Jake Neighbors, Ridley Gregg. Like, you know, you can go through these players. And, you know, uh, when we talk about skating, hey, listen, we know the game's faster. The teams want players uh, that can skate, and there's no question about it. But uh, I can pretty much tell you, Braden Schneider skated like uh, uh, Jake Sanderson. Might have been the second pick in the draft because of yeah, the way he plays and his attitude. So the reason he ends up at 19 is just because the skating isn't as, isn't as developed. Now, now the key is, is this is where your strength and development people come in. This is where the physiology uh, assessment comes in. You know, how much do we think we can improve the skating? How much do we think uh, that skating can get better? You're going to make projections on skating where you think it's going to get better or it won't. And I'll give you an example. In 1994, we drafted Jason Botterill 20th overall in, uh, in, in, in Dallas. Now, uh, Jason's mother, Doreen McConnell, was an Olympic speed skater for Canada. <laughs> so, you know, Jennifer Botterill, who's going to be on, uh, you know, uh, 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 what's uh, the Blades, uh, CBC? What's the show with the Blades? Uh, oh, I, I... Battle of the Blades. I know Battle which one Blades. you're talking about. Battle and, of the and Blades. That's a good pedigree, too. Yeah, ter somebody. terrific skater, right? <laughs> now I get that. So when we watch Jason play at a 20th, we loved everything about his game. Loved everything. His, his competitiveness, his thinking, his ability to make plays, carve out, all the, all the way he played. And we looked at his skate and we said, we, we really believe it'll improve. You know, we, we evaluated different things at that time and we, we felt that it would really improve. Now, let me tell you this. I haven't been around any player that worked harder than Jason Botterill at being a better player, skating included. He poured every bit of sweat equity into improving his skating. You know what we found out later on? He could have poured in even more. He could have poured in as he, he, he just didn't have the capacity to get his skating to a level necessary to be an NHL player. He tried. We made the so people might say, hey, listen, Jason Botterill failed. No, Jason Botterill didn't fail. Jason Botterill gave himself every single opportunity to be an NHL player. He, he just didn't have uh, a, a significant attribute to allow him to be that player. So we were wrong in our projection. And so that's going to happen with some of the players in here. So when you, when you talk about some of these players, Jake Neighbors, Doug Armstrong, who, was, who I worked with in Dallas for a lot of years, he said that some of his scouts compared Jake Neighbors to Brendan Morrow. And so there was two questions I had, and Doug said this. He said, "All they, they had me at Brendan Morrill, because Brendan was a, was a terrific player, but why did we get Brendan Morrill later in the first round? I'll, I'll tell you why. Skating wasn't great, and he, wasn't, he, he, he was some six foot. So that pushed him down. He became a really good, solid NHL player. Now, I asked the question is, okay, Maybe Jake Neighbors could be exactly Brendan Morrill. But then I asked myself this other question. Could Brendan Morrill play in the NHL today with his skating? Yeah. So it's great to use a comparable player, but it might not apply in today's game. And, and, and that's not a knock against Brendan. I'm just saying how you, how you have to look at it. 
So when when you point out about the skating and and where players, but but then I would ask you this: William Wallander and Robbie Arventi and JJ Paterka, all excellent skaters in my view. All very very good skaters. Even Helga so, Granz is pretty good too. Helga Granz, Sam Colangelo, who's Nadinoff, Thomas Bordalo. Like you know, I think they're all good skaters, right? So mm-hmm. you know, like I I think this. The projection is always going to be there, and you're trying to manage uh, the different attributes and elements of a player's game. But when I give you the Braden Schneider idea that if he was a better skater, we're not we're talking about him in the top five. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. I mean, not even that dissimilar to uh, to a Jake Sanderson, yeah, uh, as you said, yeah. in terms of his skill set. Like that's, yeah. I'm surprised they hadn't arrived at that earlier. But <laughs> now that you mentioned it, it's like, oh yeah, that is kind of obvious, uh, you know. And and I've got a ton of time. I mean, we didn't spend too much time on the the top ten because, as we agreed, it it more or less played out. Yeah. As we expected, but I, I think one thing I do want to qualify for any Ottawa Senators fans listening. Uh, I know there's been a pushback from the more analytically inclined draft analysts on Jake Sanderson. You got a hell of a player there at fifth overall, and you're going to be very satisfied with what he brings to the NHL. Uh, I, I've got so much time for his game, Craig, and and you know I we talk about how underscouted the USHL is, and I think you and I must have been like what half of the media component at the tournament. Um, <laughs> But uh, Jake Sanderson, player from the USHL Fall Classic to the end of the year, just so night and day. And it, it, and that's kind of similar to Brendan Brisson later in the first round. And this uh-huh. is something that I really kind of key in on with these prospects is 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 their their year progression in their draft year. And and even Ridley Gregg at twenty eighth overall, that that for me uh, qualifying that that this is all a, a moving series of moving parts and and the Ottawa Senators could look like geniuses and and vice versa. That at 28 was not the pick for me. I would have, for example, gone with Brendan Brisson. But the commonality between the two players, both had fantastic year-over-year improvement. Every time you watch them, they looked a, a little bit better than they did in the prior viewing. And I think Jake Sanderson is like the, the crown jewel of players who uh, really developed over the course of their draft year. Now that we're moving into the second round, Craig, I was thinking we could kind of go back and forth on some of the picks that uh, really kind of caught our attention as as really positive ones here and and ones that we thought were really well advised based on the intel available to us. And I mean, I'm looking at this group right now and and I think we might have talked about him in a previous show, but man, that Theodore Niederbach pick by the Detroit Red Wings at 51, big fan of that one. I mean, it, it was really kind of funny because... We rated him at elite prospects in the mid-20s. And, and this comes back to what you were saying. You have to stand firm in your evaluation. You have to gather the information available to you. You have to synthesize that into a decision on where to rank these players. And no matter what the pushback was, and we got lots of it from people on the team side, like, oh, are you guys watching the same player? Can you believe this? You guys have Niederbach in the 20s? Well, I tell you what, having Hakan Anderson, master scout of the Swedes, take Theodore Niederbach at 51, and then not only draft him that high, but <clears throat> in a draft video say, we drafted him because we liked his upside. Now, at Elite Prospects, we spent the entire year checking in with, with scouts and asking them, what do you think? What do you think? And they would all tell us that we were way too high on Niederbach. No upside. He's going to be a bottom-of-the-lineup player. You guys are way off base. To have somebody who scouts Sweden with that level of expertise in our corner, 
Uh, certainly on a personal level, it was deeply satisfying to see the draft play out that way with Niederbrock. And you look at his start in the J20 National, which is what they renamed the, uh, the Super Elite in Sweden. He's off to a roaring start with, with Daniel Torgerson, who went about 10 picks prior to the Winnipeg Jets. So that was one that really caught my attention, Craig. Are there any in the second round that kind of jumped out at you as, as looking especially good or bad or uh, somewhere in between? I mean, there's such a wide spectrum of possible outcomes with these players, but I'm sure there has to be at least a few that really caught out, uh, jumped out and caught your attention. Well, you know, when you, when you talk about Niederbach, I think that couple of things that really caught my ear when you're discussing him is, you know, what were the Detroit Red Wings looking at and, and what did they see? Well, you're drafting a, an 18 year old kid. So it's potential. You know, he had an injury a couple of years ago that was pretty, you know, took him some time and, and you're Lost not only in, in your development, it also, you know, you're trying to recuperate from that and it affects your development. But, you know, when they talk about, here's what we're looking for and here's what we think he has. He has this, he has this, he has that. He's a, he's, he's a heady player. He's a creative player. He's, he makes good plays. He creates scoring chances. He's confident with the puck. He, he needs time, just like just about every single one of these players, you know, not named Lafreniere. They need time. And they're mm-hmm. going to, and most of them are going to need a lot more time than less time. And this is, but, but understanding what a player has and then saying, okay, these are what, and I, I, differentiate between developmental weaknesses and inherent weaknesses. Now, a developmental weakness is one that allows you to get better and to to continuously find a way uh, to build your game. An inherent weakness, I don't think they can be overcome. And, and those are the ones that, you know, that, that, that really, for me, when I'm evaluating players, become red flags for me. Does it prevent them from being a player? Not necessarily, but it might prevent them from being a, 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 a higher place player with respect to your NHL lineup. Now, when, when I go through it and you talk about it, like, you know, it, it's funny as we talk and, we, and you, you talk to different people and you discuss it. And I find the discussions are always good because it's always a, a really good opportunity for self-assessment and self-evaluation. And, you know, when I go through the draft, like Helga Grants, like he improves so significantly uh, over time. Robbie Yerventi, who, who who I think is a is a player that's got a lot of chance to be good. We talked about Paterka, Thomas Bortolo. As I as, as I went back and looked over my notes from from two years and watched some more uh, video on him, I, I just saw this intense competitor. This such a and, and not just intense, but smart. And, oh yeah, you know, oh, yeah. I, and I start to look at at him, and then you know Luke Evangelista, and like. Quite frankly, I, I love Luke. I, I love the way Luke plays. Do, do I think Luke's going to be a high-end player? No, but I think Luke's going to be a real good player on good teams. You know, Emil, Emil Heineman. I mean, he got drafted by Florida, and he's another player that, you know, g- given the benefit of time, I was able to go back and watch and look and see, oh, boy, this kid's a pretty good player. And, you know, he, he ends up getting in there. You know, we, we already talked about Brock Faber. You, you talk about Niederbach. You know, like Joe Blomquist, uh, you know, the Pittsburgh drafted two goaltenders. It, it's interesting to see, you know, you know wh- where they go because certainly I can see the ability in them. And, and I go back to when Colorado drafted Anderton. You know, and I think Anderton's g- g- going to be a number one goaltender in the NHL. And I think they got him in the third or fourth round. Mm-hmm. But you know, and that's what you got to be doing. Jack Finley. I've watched Jack Finley play since he was a young, young, like a young bantam. 
and he's a big kid with ability, but it seems now that he's just finding it. He's starting to become more comfortable in his own body. And one of my favorite players in the draft is Igor Sokolov. Like, I, I, I think that might be one of those players with the, he, he's the big man with the soft, soft hands. And I, and I think he learned a lot uh, about how good he can be when he went to the World Junior. And so it's going to be interesting to watch him. I'm, 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 is he a lock for me? No, but I certainly like a lot of the things that he does and, you know, the, watch how he's progressed. You know, and I named a bunch of guys, you know, and there's a lot more in there. But, but it's always fascinating when you look back at the second round because a number of these players, not all of them, but a few of them are going to end up being better than players drafted in the first round. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And 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 another few picks, too, that I really like from this, this second round. I've got a ton of time for Brock Faber at 45. I think that if you, if you take his game in the defensive zone alone, <clears throat> like I, I think there are a few defensemen who do a better job of in-zone defense than Brock Faber. And then if you look at the way he skates, I mean, he's a one-man breakout. And, and mechanically, his skating stride is so clean. Like, if I have a kid who needs to improve their scouting, uh, sorry, their skating stride, and I've got them watching tape, and I'm going, this is how you need to, to change the way that you get up ice. I'm forcing them to sit down almost clockwork orange style and watch Brock Faber because the way that he, he kind of works through his crossovers, uh, such fluidity through his stride, I mean, it gives him such an ability to create separation and transition. Uh, another pick that I was really, I, I don't know if I like it in this spot necessarily so much as I'm surprised by it and interested by it is Cross Hannes at number 55. And I know we were we were at the Halenka Gretzky and he put on a hell of a performance there. I think he was undoubtedly uh, the best American forward of that group. But uh, I, I got a lot of pushback again from from teams for ranking him towards the end of the second round. But if he can improve his skating on the opposite end of Faber, I mean, the, the, the soft hands, I mean, you talked about Sokolov, but I mean, in terms of small ice playmaking, man, Cross Hannes can do some really special stuff. And I think people, when they look at his production with Portland, you always have to contextualize these things and go, what line was he playing on? What opportunities was this player getting? And when I look at Cross Hannes, I go, well, when, in a lot of my viewings, he was on the third line. In a lot of my viewings, he was playing on the second power play. Am I expecting him to produce like a Seth Jarvis in those sorts of situations? No, of course not. But then you also have to counter that with the, wouldn't he be up in those situations if he was capable to begin with? And it's a really interesting balancing act. And I'm going to be curious to see how his career plays out because uh, I found anyway that Cross Hannes is, is somebody who generates some very, uh, shall we say, divisive opinions among the scouting community. And, you know, going into the third round, I thought that run... Right from about 64th overall to, to 67th, so Topi Nimala to Toronto. That was fantastic work by Kyle Dubas. Trading down, you go from Tyler Clevin at 46th overall, I believe, and instead you get Roni Hirvinen, a really intelligent two-way center, and then Topi Nimala, a defensive defenseman with Carpat, who played in the men's league for pretty much all of his draft year. Uh, some of the film work I've done on Nimala this season has been so impressive. He's really taken a step forward in his development. Uh, the Minnesota Wild jumping in front of teams for Damon Hunt. I think that could really pay off for them. Uh, they might have unearthed a little bit of a gem there. You know, I mean, I, I think about Kale Fleury and how far he dropped in his draft year because of playing on a weaker WHL team. And certainly somebody like a Damon Hunt kind of fits the bill. 
uh, Kasper Samotev all. I, I think I'm a little bit lower on him than some people within the draft Twitter sphere, but certainly the hands, the shot, uh, the work rate are really impressive, even if his skating stride isn't there. And then you've got Ian Moore. And Ian Moore was such a fascinating prospect. I, I went to, to Boston for the bean pot and uh, remember when we could go to rinks, Craig, wasn't that the best? But uh, I had a little bit of extra time between games and I made sure to get a live viewing in on Ian Moore. And the physical tools that he has. I mean, like if somebody can rein in the, the mistakes and kind of get him to play a more complete, detailed brand of hockey, I think a six foot four defenseman who can skate like that on a long-term development track, he's going to the Chicago Steel next year. From there to Harvard, I mean, that to me is a pick that could really pay off dividends in the long term. And then, of course, not too far off in the distance, we've got Jeremy Poirier at 72 to the Calgary Flames. And if you're asking me which, which draft pick from this year's class is my favorite, I think that's the one. I mean, as a playmaker, Jeremy Poirier, you give him the puck in the offensive zone, I think he's top 10 in this class regardless of position. The only problem is, of course, he has to iron out some flaws in the rest of his game at the other two-thirds of the ice. But I think that's a project well worth taking on at 72 overall in the NHL draft. Yeah, I was, uh, you know, he, he was one of those players where I, I, I go, really? Like, I kept going, really? Like, he, he and, and, and again, you start to evaluate. Good or bad, really. Evaluations, right? <laughs> but, 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 like, I mean, what amazes me, uh, JD, and this is always something that I that I think you always have to keep in mind. And, and and you've covered the draft for a number of years. I've been around the draft. I have never once, ever, ever, ever heard a team stand up when they draft a player and say, "Yeah, we drafted him, but we're really concerned about this, 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 and that." And yet, every single scout always talks about the flaws of a player heading into a draft. So. You know, but when you draft a player, right, like, you know, you're celebrating what they can do. And I don't, to me, what Jeremy Poirier does should be celebrated. Can he work on his defense? Yeah. Can, does he need to get better? Yeah. But how many players do what he does? Oh, like hardly any. That's, that's the thing with Jeremy Poirier. Like, I'm so on board with what you're saying. Like, I, I genuinely believe, Craig, and I will die on this hill if I have to, that he is a top 10 playmaker in this draft, regardless of position. Like you put him up there with some of the forwards in this class, you put the puck on his stick in the offensive zone. I think Jeremy Poirier is a top 10 playmaker in this group. And I say that well aware of his flaws elsewhere, but to that exact end, you say that and you go, well, can we work on everything else? Maybe, maybe not, but the juice is absolutely worth the squeeze. And then when you consider that Calgary got Jeremy Poirier at 72nd, 72nd overall, and, and the fact that they traded down twice from Connor Zary to, to do it, right? Like they could have taken Connor Zary at 19th overall and nobody would have batted an eye. They trade down twice to get the extra pick for Jeremy Poirier and then Jake Boltman as well in the third round. I mean, what a masterclass by Brad, uh, Brad Tree Living. I think the Calgary Flames fans should be really excited about what he was able to accomplish with one first round pick, turning it into three really good prospects. Well, and, and, and I know that Calgary... Uh, you know, looking at the at the draft, they felt that there was going to be some defensemen that they available that they liked uh, at certain points of the draft. Uh, 
the, in the in the second round into the third round. So, you know, again, you go in with a plan and you say, okay, we, we feel there's some defensemen and, and, and their prospect covered. They went 15 consecutive picks since they last drafted a defenseman, and that defenseman was Yusuf Valabaki. That's a long time ago. And yeah, no so, kidding. you know, to get some of those defensemen shells stocked in the prospect covered were, was important for them. And so they identified a part of the draft where they said, hey, listen, there's some players here. Let's get some picks. And that's exactly what they did. So it, it's not just who they picked and wh wh whether you like them or you think they could have drafted somebody better, but there was a strategy there that, that that goes into the draft as well. And certainly, you know, you, you move from 19 to 22 and 22 to 24, five picks, uh, and, and you end up getting two extra third-round picks. Yeah, that's, a, that, that's executing your strategy. Oh, definitely. And and I think that it's almost as if the hockey gods were were smiling upon them and rewarding the uh, the trade down philosophy. Because, I mean, if you look at a lot of the analytics that kind of evaluate the draft, they pretty much uniformly suggest that you're going to get better value if you trade down. So uh, certainly they, they got rewarded for their discretion there. And and I know I've got a pretty big Canucks following out in Vancouver. I, I wanted to get your thoughts on the Yoni Yermo pick. I think I've had to do about ten different radio hits talking about the uh, the Finnish defender now. But um, for people in Vancouver, what did you think about this one? Because I, frankly, Craig, I did not even like. I would get asked in advance of this draft, "What are the Canucks going to do at eighty-two? Which defensemen are going to be available to them?" And never in a million years did I think that Yoni Yermo, somebody we had ranked in the 40s at Elite Prospects, and of course this is kind of par for the course with the NHL draft. We see players uh, drop or, or, or rise all the time. There's, there's nothing exceptional about that, but even so, I had no idea that he would be available to them. And I think that personally speaking, you get a six foot four defenseman who can move the puck like that, can skate like that, put up points in the, the Finnish junior circuit. I'm a fan of the pick. What are your thoughts? Well, so we just talked about Jeremy Poirier. What's the difference? Yeah, yeah, fair, fair. I mean, maybe skating. Yeah, well, I think Yoni's a really. I mean, uh, Jeremy's a better skater. He's more dynamic, but but I think Yoni's a really good skater and his range and and, and you know what else he is? He's got this significant offensive initiative. He wants to take the puck and he wants to make plays and he wants to be part of the offensive attack. I love that about him, and so. Hmm. You know, again, while his defense, okay, great, okay. <laughs> like, uh, I, I may have told you this story, uh, but Mike Bossy, uh, in the, you know, in 1977, uh, uh, Del Torre, he went, to, he went to Al Arbor, and he said, listen, we're looking at this big, strong, strapping winger uh, that we think could uh, come into our team and, you know, help us. He's rugged. He, you know, he's not Clark Gillies. He's not going to score as much. He might be a 20-goal scorer, but big, strong, rugged, competitive. Or we can take the 75-goal scorer from, uh, from Quebec. But you know what? His defense isn't good. What do you think? And Al Arbor says, give me the goal scorer. I'll teach him how to play defense. Yeah. Yeah, the that's guy, the way it like, should I, be. If, if Yoni Yermo, it, it, like, and again, interviews and trying to understand where players are at, like, hey, listen, you lay it out. Here, here's what we're going to help you work on. Here's what you need to work on. Let's let's have a plan and, and, and go with it. Unless the player looks you right in the eye and says, not playing defense, not interested in it, then, mm -hmm. you know, players want to get better. And when you've been the best player and you can do things, you know, why wouldn't you continue to do them? 
And again, I talk about the nobody stands up and goes, yeah, we drafted this player. He skates really well, but his defense isn't very good. He doesn't have the right reads. He takes risks. <laughs> like, did you hear the Vancouver Canucks say that? No, no. And, and I don't think you ever will. No, you no. won't. So I, 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 I've, what he was able to do over the course of time, you know, when I talk about the developmental uh, timeline, I, like I think it was tremendous what he did. And again, a big man like that that can skate, very, very impressive. Oh yeah, there's always there's always room for those in the NHL. And and yeah. I think that that's such a really strong foundation for Yoni Yermo to to build upon. And and I know, for example, the Canucks themselves, like it wasn't just me. They were as surprised as I was that Yoni Yermo was available to them. I mean, it's uh, it's not often you get a player with that physical skill set available to them, available uh, at that point in the draft. So I think the Canucks, uh, Canucks fans can rest assured they got a good one with their well, first pick. Well, just quickly on that, draft. you know, and, and, and I don't know Jake Boltman, uh, and you know very well at all. So you know, yeah, I'm just going to leave him out of this. But when I look at when I look at you know we start in the third round and 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 you start to go through it right. So you started to talk about Nimala Hunt, Ian Moore, Cormier. I have Vero, Poirier, uh, uh, Samuel Kanashko, the Slovakian that went to Columbus, uh, Yoni Yermo. I mean, what a run on defensemen that that we could be looking at in time. I really do believe in time. We could be looking at these guys and saying, wow, they, they made some really strong picks in that part of the draft. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and just like the conviction on those picks as well. Because, I mean, if you look at somebody like Damon Hunt, I, I know the NHL had way more time for Hunt than the public sphere, but... Uh, if you were to go off the public sphere, it might look a little bit higher than people expected. I mean, Ian Moore, a little bit in the same vein. Uh, Ian Moore really excites me, Craig. I got to be honest. Like, I, I I say that very cognizant of the flaws in his game. Like, I, I watched him in, in Massachusetts uh, high school. And, and I was like, I got to go out and see him because I've heard all these reports on him. I talked to people on the team side. They're like, this, this guy's got some really interesting physical skills. So I make sure to go see him on a way to a Providence uh, game. And and it was the most fascinating two and a half periods of hockey I, I think I've seen all year, uh, for good and bad. So in the first period, out of position, loses his man on two consecutive goals. Like, I'm writing DND in bold on my notepad uh, with a Sharpie, then highlighting it for good measure. Then in the second period, everything seems to click for more. And it's like Neo in the Matrix. You won't need to dodge bullets, Neo. Uh, you know, you can stop them dead in their tracks. And it was just this this really interesting portal into a player who has some just phenomenal uh, physical skills available to them. And if he gets the right mentorship, like I think that the Anaheim Ducks, with their track record of developing defensemen, like that's such a perfect landing spot for an Ian Moore type of player. And then you consider the, the developmental track in front of him, even before you account for the Anaheim Ducks. I mean, you've got him going to the Chicago Steel. They've got more resources invested into them than most NHL teams, it seems like. Now, that's a bit of hyperbole. They've really got a lot of cool stuff going on there. Uh, he's going to Harvard as well. I mean, look at some of the defensemen that come out of there. It's really, I think, this third round, like you said, there are going to be some quality NHL defensemen. And when we're looking back on this part of the draft three, four, five years from now, we could be looking at some of these players. I mean, even Samuel Nasco to, to Columbus at 78, uh, and and Wyatt Kaiser as well at 81. We could be looking back and going, how were these players available? 
how did these teams pull this off? And they're going to be looking really good for taking a, taking a swing on some of these defensemen. Well, I mean, uh, again, we, we look at attributes, right? So what are their attributes, right? And, and again, what, what do they need developmentally outside of time? Because they all need time. And then, and then you work at it. Lucas Cormier is different than Ian Moore, who's different than Canasco, who's different than Gianni Yermo, who's different than Poirier, and who's different than Nima. And their needs are all different. And, and one of the significant parts of, uh, you know, finding a way to ensure that you make the draft work for you is, is not only in your process of evaluation and then going through it, and, and it goes without saying that you have to have a good process of evaluation and select good players, but then you have to understand what the development needs and timeline is and then have the people in place to help with that development. Because you can have a great scouting process and you could select all these players with excellent upside and the ability to get better. But if you don't develop them, you're, you're going to fall short and that's going to hurt you. And conversely, you can have great development people and, 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 and the effort that goes into that side of things. And if you're not going through the right scouting process and selecting the right players, you're going to fail. So they go, so much of it goes hand in hand. And, you know, so the first part of it is, is, is the draft. And now everybody has their players. Now the second part, and this is where the evaluations continue, because you're not just evaluating who they drafted, you're also evaluating how they were developed. Because a lot of players don't end up reaching their full potential or what you think your potential could be, not because of anything they didn't do, but things that teams didn't do. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and you know, I don't want to take us, us too far off the tracks here, but I mean, I look at uh, the New York Rangers trading away Leah Sanderson for 60th overall for the privilege to draft uh, William Quile or Cooley. I always get his name wrong. Yeah, uh, I mean, Cooley, yeah, uh, yeah I, I just can't think of a, a more uh, glaring example of poor development of a prospect that, you know what, did I think that Leah Sanderson went a bit high? I mean, sure. But also, there were some real tools there. He had some projectable elements to his game. And I think that truly, I, I could evangelize the job that Jeff Gordon has done with this team for, for hours. I think that he's had a clear, concise plan, and he has acted with authority on it. And he's gotten a little bit of luck, too. I mean, it, let's let's be clear about that. I mean, moving up from 11th to 1st overall, I think anybody will take that. But I look at Leah Sanderson, and I go, you can't tell me that development doesn't matter. Uh, because if he wasn't getting yo-yoed from the NHL to the AHL and playing on the fourth line and being a 13th forward, I think that he would be in a much better spot today than he is presently. Uh, now, now, moving away from that tangent a little bit and back to where we were, I also think there were some great value picks in the the fourth round. I mean, you look at... Uh, we're, we're certainly on different sides of this evaluation, but I think Carter Savoy at 100th overall by the Edmonton Oilers, that's that's great value. Dylan Grant to the New York Rangers at 103rd overall. Uh, Jan Bednarsh to the Detroit Red Wings at 107. Uh, Blake Biondi is super interesting as a prospect. I mean, Craig, maybe you'll push back on this one. Maybe you'll agree. But I think that in terms of this draft class, I'm not saying that Blake Biondi is the worst skater, but he has the most bizarre skating stride. And he's got a high enough activity rate that he sometimes makes up for it and can cover spaces and uh, larger distances very quickly. But it's a very uh, interesting way of doing it. And and then Ethan Edwards at 120. I mean, I've been singing his praises all year. He's been kind of my guy as a late 
late round uh, prospects. So uh, who are some prospects that kind of stuck out for you? Or do you have any thoughts that you want to add on the players I identified from round four and maybe even a little bit into round five? Well, what I would say is, is that, you know, what, what's the hardest thing to acquire is skill. And, you know, I, I really believe that, you know, uh, you're always looking to, to get as much skill as you possibly can. And, you know, you start to get into the fourth round, the fifth round, the sixth round. I, I'm always looking at the guys with skill. I, I want guys that can think and that have skill. And maybe there's some, maybe they're smaller. Maybe they have some areas of their game that need a little bit of improvement in, in, in significant areas. But I, I'm just, my, my, my thinking has changed so much in that regard that, like, I, I'm not taking checkers. I'm not taking uh, guys that are energy players. I, I want skill at this point because I think it's the mm-hmm. hardest thing to acquire. And that's where you go after it. So, you, you, you know, you talk about Ethan Edwards, skill. Zion Nybeck, skill. Uh, William Villano, he's not a great skater, but he's got skill. Uh, Antonio Strangis, inconsistencies in his game, skill. Uh, you, we, we talked about Carter Savoy, skill. Brandon Coey, skill. You know, inconsistency. If Brandon Coey was more consistent in certain areas of his game, he, he, he would have been drafted a lot higher with, with that physical package, but it doesn't mm-hmm. preclude him. You know, Michael Benning, skill. Do they need areas that, they, like Michael, to me, he's got to work on, you know, some explosive quickness and, and, and being able to, to use skating to, to create greater advantages for himself. So wh- when I look at those areas of the draft, I like, that's what I'm looking at. And, and you talk about those players. Like, Ben Nash is a really good player. I'll, I'll tell you the player that, you, you know, we talk about Calgary's defense. They got a really good goaltender in Chechelet. That kid is a really good player. And I got alerted to him. And then I got some video on him and started watching him. And I and this is before the draft. And I was like, wow. And then I see that Calgary drafted him. And I was like, okay, I got familiarity with him now. I, honestly, I'd never seen him play other than the video. But based on what I saw in the video, uh, it was I was really impressed. And so, you know, we talk about Bed Nash. You talked about Dylan Durant. Uh, you, and I just talked about Chechelon, but you know, upside skill, that's where I'm headed. Yeah. And, and I really wanted to, to kind of add, uh, something to, to your point there. I'm totally, totally on board with what you're saying. And, and here's why I kind of find myself totally agreeing with you on this is because at this point in the draft, right? You, you like, for one, I think people underestimate how much skill you have to have just to be a, a fourth liner in the NHL. And I look at somebody like a you know Vancouver example again. I'm, I'm showing my 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 Vancouver colors here, but I mean Carter. Uh, sorry, not Carter Savoy. Um, Tom Sestito. Oh. Tom Sestito, 65 goal scorer that one year. Like you need to have such a baseline of skill just to play in the NHL at any level, right? So that's why I think you have to identify skill here. The other thing is why would you? I, uh, identify somebody in the fourth, fifth, sixth, or seventh round and go, I want to invest a draft pick in that player so that they can become a 13th forward. I mean, Craig, every year in October, or at least in most years in October, there are players on waivers available to every team. They're out there for free in, in the ether. You just have to, to pick their contract up. Those players can fill in those gaps, but it's so much harder to find skill and to get that kind of surplus value that you get from using a fourth round pick on somebody like a Brandon Coe 
on somebody like a Daniel uh, Chechelev, who, of course, I, I'm going to have to take you at your word here. I will fully admit I have not had any tape viewings on Chechelev at all, but the numbers look pretty good. I'll give you that much. Uh, I, I'm, I'm totally in agreement there because at the end of the day, I mean, what, what are you trying to do with the draft? If you're trying to find those fourth line players, then how are you using this part of roster construction to really advance your team's cause? It's hard to figure out uh, how that works for me. So when I look at somebody like Zion Newbick, uh, somebody you identified, I go, well, you know what? I, I don't know if he would have been like as, as high as others had him on their board. I think he was really kind of settling in around 60th overall. And for me, that was a bit rich, right? Because if you're going to play at that size, a lot of the time you need to have that explosive skating to make up for it or really dynamic skills. And we can talk about whether the NHL needs to adapt more to kind of accommodate players like that. But at a certain point, you have to respect the environment as it exists. And, and to that exact end, I had a hard time rating Zion Nubik uh, as high as some people did. But if you take him at 115, like I, sign me up. Sign me up for that upside bet. You will get further with that pick than any other one where you're trying to unearth a fourth liner. Like, for example, uh, and I hate to single him out like this, but like Yarmir Pitlick, for example. I look at him and I go, if everything breaks right, you're looking at a fourth line center, maybe a 13th forward. How have you advanced your team's cause with a fourth round pick that yields that sort of return? It's hard for me to kind of square that. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you, you know, so you look at players like Nybeck, you look at Connor McLennan, who went to the uh, Philadelphia Flyers, uh, Martin Kromiak, who who went in the, in the fifth round to the LA Kings. I mean, they've all, Max, the other player I really like for the Edmonton owners are trying to find more skill is Maxim Bereskin, right? Like at these points, like Bereskin, Nybeck, uh, Chromiak, uh, they've Wayne. all shown, they've all shown, McLennan, they've all shown a real capability to excel at their present level. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. like like much above other players. So why am I going to take players that haven't even done what they've done at their present level at, at a pick? I'm not going to do it. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a really good point. And and as you said that, I was kind of scanning the fifth round. I was like, okay, who who are some guys that kind of stick out for me? And uh, you know, Artem Schlein is somebody who who is in that same vein. He's almost like the forward version of, of Ian Moore, where it's like you you get overwhelmed by the skill and the. The tools available, but somebody needs to kind of mold that into one coherent package. And here's where I really break rank. So I'm going to contradict myself in the most specific terms here because I'm looking at this fifth round as we move into it, Craig, and I go, man, I really like that Elliot Denoyer pick at 135. And he's kind of like, for me, the low rent version of Cross Hannes in, in the sense that, and, and not in terms of their skill packages, very different players. But in the sense that I look at his production and I go, that's going to ward some people off, certainly. But when I looked at his ice time at Instat, he was playing barely like third-line minutes, right? And, and when I watched Denoyer move up with Moncton and when he would get those opportunities with a Jacob Peltier, uh, with, with, with Connor, um, oh, the one that uh, Calgary signed, McKenna, Connor McKenna. Connor right? McKenna, when he would, yeah. When he would get those opportunities, I would just watch him pick pucks out of the corner. I would watch him cause havoc. I would watch him go to the net. And I would say to myself, is he as skilled as, as a Peltier or a McKenna or any of these other players in this environment? Absolutely not. Does he have enough skill to get by? I think yes. And what's interesting to me is projecting him forward and going, can this guy be something akin to perhaps a Zach Hyman? 
And I say to myself, yeah, absolutely. I think that with his skill package, with his work rate, with his uh, work ethic as well, like I think that this is somebody who, if you look at his stat line and you you say this is a complete non-starter for me, you might miss out on a player here in Elliot Danoyer, even if it is a direct contradiction to everything we just said about rounds four and five and what we would generally want to draft for. Uh, I, I would allow myself just that one bit of flexibility on that pick. So I want Flyers fans to know, even if you're looking at the stat line there and it doesn't look too impressive, 35 points in 61 games last year, I think now that he's been traded to Halifax, he's got four points, he's playing on the top line with Zach LaRue, I think he's really going to take off this year. That's somebody to monitor if you're a Flyers fan. Well, yeah, and, and, and probably in a similar light, I would I, I would put Zane Wisdom in there as well. Uh, a, a real energetic, you know, competitive player that's hard on the puck and creates, I mean, all, you know, points aren't the only thing to that creates, uh, you know, significant value, you know. And so I, I, I think that trying to delineate and differentiate between points and, and, and what that productivity means as opposed to not maybe having as many points and productivity in other areas means. And, you know, I, I, I try to talk about that with, with defensemen. And, you know, just because you don't have big numbers as a defenseman doesn't mean you're not going to help the offense. And just because you have big numbers as a defenseman in terms of points doesn't mean that you're going to help the, 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 the offense. You know, so, again, it would be nice if it was all black and white. It's great. And, you know, understanding that and, and allowing, allowing J.D. for – you know, uh, you know, a, 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 that gray to come into your picture and understanding how it can uh, be val- be valuable, I, th- I think is significant as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think the one thing, like, I didn't want to get on my soapbox and like, uh, you know, say, hey, I've, I've figured it out. But I mean, like the thing with Desnoyers for me, and, and he's kind of a stand-in, uh, you know, like, let's not, not get too lost in the specificity here, but like, you need to have a little bit of flexibility as well. I think when you're, you're talking yeah. about the draft and your philosophy and being able to make decisions on the fly. And, and I think that's one for me that kind of is, is my, uh, my, my perfect example of that as I get to this part of the draft. And, you know, there, there are a couple other picks here in the the fifth round that, that stick out to me as, as, players who almost are in a similar mold and, and Bear Hughes, what a great story. I mean, somebody who was playing rec hockey two years ago uh, gets, I, I don't know if it was WHL rookie of the year or just the Spokane chiefs, but he had a fantastic rookie year. Uh, again, not too many points, but if you want somebody to, to, to pry pucks loose, to go to the front of the net, to, to create havoc. I mean, that's, that's the guy right there. And then even another player that I was a little surprised they even went this high was, was Rivas Anson's. And, uh, you know, just a fascinating prospect. If you're playing with Bay Como Dracar, you're not going to be playing with, with the Lafreniers and Peltiers of the world, right? I mean, this is a team that doesn't have quite the skill level of, of some of these other ones, and that's going to impact your production. But when I watch him play... Pretty similar to Desnoyers in his ability to really complement skilled players well, and somebody who can really kind of add his own element uh, further up the lineup. And I say, well, Pittsburgh, they're they're making a really good bet on that front because I look at Connor Sheary, I look at Brian Rust, I look at uh, basically everybody who's been a support piece in that lineup, and I go, they all profile fairly similarly. And I think that Rivas Anson's kind of fits within that mold. So. 
some really interesting bets in the fifth round. Was there anybody else who kind of stuck out to you at this point in the draft? You know, what I, what I would say about when, when you're getting into this point in the draft, you're drafting on, you know, who do you like? Who do you really want? Who do you want to help develop? And, and, and so the, there, there's many, many players that you're, you're you know, from – Viti Miettinen, who's going to St. Cloud, to Chase Yoder. I mean, there's fantastic, there's fantastic stories here. Connor McLennan, and you go all the way down and you keep going through it, right? But, you know, it's going to be interesting to, to, to obviously watch how these players develop and, and, and where they end up heading because half the players in the NHL are drafted in the first or second round. So that means the other half have to come from other parts of the draft, <laughs> whether it yeah, be or, or outside or the draft. agency, right? So, so I mean, these are the areas. So, so the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh round, free agents that end up uh, being signed and, and find a way to the NHL. But th- th- this is where you're going to find the other fifty percent of NHLers. Teams are are looking to try to find those diamonds in the rough and trying to find, uh, you know, where they can. Uh, you know, get a really uh, a solid contributor, obviously a Jamie Benn who went in the fifth round. We talked about at the outset. I mean, everybody would love to get that. But, you know, you're trying to get players that have abilities and attributes and a willingness to get better. And you're going to work with them. And, you know, we know that a lot of them aren't going to make it. But I do know this, and the, the numbers tell you this, 50% of NHLers are coming outside the first and second round. Yeah, and they, they got to come from somewhere, right? Yes, and, they do. And that's, <laughs> that's, that's the fun part of this exercise is trying to, to figure out which ones are going to do that uh, from this year's group. So uh, with that in mind, and, and we're getting pretty pretty late here, so I'll speed this up. I mean, uh, did anybody stick out in rounds six through seven? Uh, I mean, for, for me personally, I'll, I'll throw out a few names here. And uh, so Dimitri Zlodeyev at 175, I really kind of wanted to get your thoughts on him because... You know, he goes to the local team for me, and I know that you had him, I think, closer to 60th overall, and and certainly that fits with his profile. If you look at his production and, and everything he can do as a two-way player, so I'm curious to get your thoughts on him and why you believe in his game uh, relative to, to where he went in the draft. I mean, somebody for, for myself who profiles in a similar mold is is perhaps Luke, uh, Luke Reed, who went to Nashville at 166. I'm a little bit surprised that he went so late. Uh, I, I kind of had him pegged for the third or fourth round. When you look at somebody who can skate like that, uh, he's going to go to the uh, University of New Hampshire and get a ton of opportunities to develop there as well. Uh, you know, it, this one, I'm not quite as high on him as, as some of my colleagues at Elite Prospects, but there's some people in our ranks who have a ton of time for uh, Alexander Gordin, the very large uh, scoring winger from Russia. So that was an interesting pick as well. And and Samuel Johannesson. I mean, those are the ones that stick out for me. Uh, where are you at with this group here as we try to figure out which players are going to form that 50%? Well, I, I, I mean, you, you touch on some players. I mean, I, I, I love the Gunner Wolf. I, I love him. <laughs> I love he, the name. <laughs> well, he's, going, he's going to Northeastern. Northeastern has shown a real propensity uh, for developing uh, players of, of all. You know, and, and two uh, Vancouver Canuck draft picks, Adam Gadet, uh, who's now in the, in the lineup, one of Holby Baker. Uh, you know, Aiden McDonough, who I, who I think is a real good prospect, a seventh-round draft pick last year. Year, you know, 
both of those guys, uh, one is graduated from Northeastern, Aiden is there now. So, you know, what, what Gunnar Wolf has is, is skill. I'm back to the skill thing. And, and then I look, he's going to Northeastern and, and they have a great record of developing players. So, you know, you look, Alexander Pashin. I mean, again, Carolina, I, 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 like, I think he's a really good offensive player. He's not a big guy, but he's got skills that a lot of other players don't have. Uh, and, and, you know, you, you can go down and, you I mean, I, I think – I think Devin Levi, the goaltender, I, I think he's he's terrifically uh, gifted and talented. And is he? Uh, I mean, like like it used to be that you didn't. People said, "Oh, you can't draft a sub six foot defenseman." Well, it seems that goaltenders now have fallen into that same category of sub six foot or six foot one goaltenders. Well, mm-hmm. okay, that's fine. I you know I I understand some of the rationale behind it, but there's exceptions to the rule. And and Devin to me is a is a really good goaltender. And you know Dustin Wolf last year went in the seventh round. All he was was the CHL goaltender of the year, and somebody that I think has has terrific potential. So those are just a, a few of the guys that that, that certainly that, that that I like, and you know certainly will be watching and and seeing, you know how they develop because again it's not just you know uh you know where they went and where they got drafted and how much they developed you're also you're also evaluating yourself and you know players that you, you ranked and you rated and you like and you think have NHL potential well you know what it's a it's a great opportunity uh for that uh that self-assessment in your own process 100 percent. I, I just want to echo everything you said about Devin Levy I mean I I I can't believe he went as late as he did. I mean, uh, he's only six feet, but I, I don't care how tall you are if you stop the puck. <laughs> oh. Like if you keep the puck out of the back of the net, I don't care if you're doing it at seven feet tall or five and a half. And Devin Levi, nine forty last year for the Carlton Place Canadians, and another player like Gunnar Wolf Fontaine who is going to Northeastern. And I know Florida is really happy that they got him in that spot. Uh, Alex, or sorry, uh, Passion. Alexander Passion, that was a really good pick as well. Another player who, like, again, I, I don't know if I had as much time for him as maybe some others in the public sphere did, but the the skill package that's there is really enticing. And he put on a great performance, too, if memory serves at the uh, the Holinka Gretzky. So you got to give him some credit there as well for uh, showing up on the national stage. And and Ronan Seeley, Craig, did you have any indication that he was going to be available with the 208th pick? Because that one just completely blindsided me. I mean, I, I spoke to some people who thought very highly of him. And of course, there there's 31 teams, right? I mean, everybody's board is different. And, and a lot of fascinating things can happen that can create a situation where Ronan Seeley is available at 208. But I just, that one for me, I, I'm not even the biggest fan of his game relative to some people in the public sphere. Like I would draft him in the third or fourth round, but even so, that's two or three rounds prior than he actually went. Uh, what do you think of Seeley's game? Because I see somebody who can skate well, can move the puck, can defend well, uh, and and he has the points to back it up. That was, was just truly spectacular to see him fall to such a point in the draft. Well, I, I, I think Ronan Seeley serves as that, is that I don't know if it's a perfect example, but I would say a really good example. Okay, here's how you've evaluated them. Obviously, NHL teams, 31 teams, evaluated them differently, and you can never dismiss, uh, you know, 31 teams. 
because as I've said this often to young players that don't get drafted, 31 teams aren't wrong. You didn't show enough. They don't, there's no way players get missed by 31 teams. 29 might miss them, but not all 31. So it's a, it's a really excellent opportunity to evaluate. Okay. Who, who, what, why did he go here? What are there things that I didn't see? Are there things that I overlooked? Are there things that NHL teams overlooked and, and that, that led them to there? And 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 that's going to happen through your viewings. That's going to happen through your discussions with with NHL scouts to try to understand, which is ultimately ultimately going to help you evaluate, uh, help you in your in growing your evaluation methodology and your process and your and and your confidence in it over time too, because, you know, just like scouting players isn't static, the scouting process isn't static. No, sir. And, and it's going to be a very interesting year for the scouting process because of, uh, you know, we got some news today. The NCHC is going to be starting its season in December. Uh, we got some news the other day that the world juniors was going to be moving up to December 25th. I believe they're considering uh, per a report from Corey Pronman. Uh, it's it's going to be a really fascinating uh, draft year. I mean, it's starting in October, so <laughs> it's already out of the ordinary on that front. No Halinka Gretzky. We'll see if there even is a U18 this year. Uh, I'm I'm really it's it's going to be a challenge, unlike one we've ever faced. I mean, as we close the book on um, the immediate aftermath, anyways, of of the 2020 draft. Uh, Craig, do you have any thoughts on on how you and I are going to be able to to pull this off and put together a ranking for the 2021 class? Because uh, I think there's just going to be so much learning on the fly, so much film work, uh, a lot of data looking at players in their draft minus one year instead of just their draft year. And uh, I'm really curious, as a matter of fact, just to to hear your thoughts on how you're going to conduct your work uh, as we get into this year of unknowns and and, uh, constantly changing field. Well, unprecedented times call for unprecedented methodologies in evaluating players. So, you know, everybody is in exactly the same place. Nobody's going to have a greater advantage per se uh, than somebody else. So to your point, everybody is going to have to use uh, the tools uh, of, of evaluation and in, in, in whatever way, and then they're going to have to wait it. They're, you're you're going to wait it based on this. You're going to wait, wait, wait it based on that, and that that is going to create, in my view, uh, a lot of disparity. I like like you know because one of the one of the big things that you're not going to have the opportunity to to really get a feel for is that progression in time. Okay, I I, I saw like think about U18. So the U18 got canceled in, in, in April. So th- there's players that are playing there that are coming up, that came up for the 2020 draft. So you missed that night. But you're also missing players that are younger players. Think about Raymond and Holtz and Askarov from, from the year before uh, at the U18, to just name a couple. And so now you, you do not have that opportunity to see those players and then see how they progress into the Holinka Gretzky. You don't have the benefit of the USHL Fall Classic, which leads into the beginning of seasons, which leads you into, uh, you know, uh, the uh, World Junior A Challenge. Because if you think about, let's just think about Russia 
and you think about watching some younger players at the U18 that are playing a year ahead of them, and the Russians would have had a couple of those guys. Then you think about the Halenka and watching them there. And then you think about the World Junior A Challenge. I mean, that's an eight-month span. And that becomes significant in terms of evaluating progress and how much they've developed in that period of time. Vanished, evaporated. You do not have that opportunity. It's the same thing with the, I mean, the, the under-18 camp that they have for, for Team Canada go to the Halenka Gretzky. They bring 44 players of the best kids born in 03 to that thing. And, and so kids get cut. But what, a, what, what an unbelievable environment. To watch 44 of, of the best 2003-born kids in Canada compete, like you, you never get that chance again, ever. It's gone. So the bottom yeah. line is you have to use different tools. Well, I shouldn't say you have to use different tools. You're going to have to use tools differently. And how you, and what, and how you weight those tools and, and how you use other opportunities to evaluate. I mean, you know, again, we're, we're using video. You know, one of the things that I have found, uh, I, I wouldn't say challenging, it, it's just different. But, you know, the way camera angles are set up in rinks, you know, when you're watching games, you know, when a player's coming out on the ice, you know, th there's a lot more view, review, 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 go back and watch, which is what video gives you the opportunity to do. But it, it, to me, it's a lot more in-depth process. And uh and more time consuming so that but that's the reality of where you're at but some of the things that you're missing i don't know how you make up for them yeah and it's it's going to be funny we talk about how it's a constantly evolving field and how you're constantly changing your evaluations as players move up and down the ranks i'm going to be really curious to see five six seven years down the road how some of these players look uh from this year's draft class 2021 but that is a topic for another day. I think we've exhausted the entirety of the 2020 draft. A pretty thorough review, if I don't say so myself. I uh, wanted to thank you for your time and your insights as always, Craig. An incredibly valuable component to the show, no doubt. And uh, we're, we're going to have to check in here in a few weeks and talk about uh, the start to the scouting season and, and yeah. some of the things that we're seeing along the way. And uh, how we are doing these evaluations. We'll give people a look at the process as it's developing. Uh, and that's going to be a really fun exercise unto itself. So I'm JD Burke. Uh, my co-host has been Craig Button. And this has been the fifth episode of the Elite Prospects Podcast. Hey, this is Rob from the Elite Prospects Podcast. I'm the producer. Uh, if you guys are a product or brand or a company that would like to sponsor the Elite Prospects Podcast, let me know uh, via email at robert.love at eliteprospects.com or just message us on any of our social media platforms. We'll get back to you and we can talk about uh, the next steps. Thanks.